Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is the Asian Madness Podcast a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hello there. It's been a while, hasn't it? Welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast, and thank you for sticking around through my break. I really needed to chill for a bit due to my travels and Chinese New Year. It's nice to be back, though. Not a day goes by where I don't think about what I'm going to write about or how I'm going to write it. What can I say? At this point in my life, this podcast is one of the most important things in my life. I really enjoy writing. Not so much recording and editing, but I absolutely love sharing stories with everyone all around the world. Anyway, happy Chinese New Year of the mouse! Okay, before I dive into this week's topic, I would just like to put out a big-time trigger warning. Maybe the biggest one so far. This episode is going to be about suicide. To be honest, I kind of struggled a bit on whether or not I wanted to cover this, but this is pretty bizarre and fascinating. And technically speaking, everything I'm going to tell you is already out there in the world and on the internet. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you guys with some of my own interpretations. I already did an episode on the suicide situation in Japan many, many episodes ago, but this one is a bit different. The details would be a bit more brutal and morbid, It's not just me throwing data and facts at you, so if you're sensitive to this topic, or if you're struggling with any form of suicidal thoughts, please do me a favor and turn this off and talk to somebody. Now, 
I know some of you might be thinking, oh, I'm fine, Jessica, you can't tell me what to do, but seriously, just this once. Okay. I trust you. This week's episode was a suggestion from a listener from Facebook, Tom Hanauer. Thank you, Tom, for suggesting this, and hopefully you're still listening, since you did suggest this, like, a year or two ago, I think. Alright, let's begin. So you guys know how for many things that we want to master and learn more about, say chess, art, appreciation, or some sort of musical instrument, there are guides and books out there telling us how to get it done, how to improve, or how to learn more about said subject. It can also be as simple as you wanting to travel to a new country and buying a travel guide that includes all these maps and places to go and stuff to buy. I remember I got myself one of those something something for dummies when I was young, and although the book was easy enough to read, I kind of failed to stick with that book and eventually lost interest in that hobby. But the thing is, if you have a strong enough desire to achieve something, you'll always find a way, right? This also kind of rings true for people looking for a way out of life, but don't know how to go about it. What method is quick and easy? What does one need in preparation, if any? Nowadays, you can find dozens upon dozens of articles and whatnot on suicide and death online. But years and years ago, people didn't have access to the internet like we do now. Then, this book called The Complete Manual of Suicide showed up. Yes, it is exactly what it sounds like. Where, though, you ask? Surprise, surprise, Japan. There is no English version of it, though you can find snippets of the English version online. The author of The Complete Manual of Suicide is a man named Tsurumi Wataru. He was born in Tokyo in the year 1964 and studied social sciences in university. He met a sociologist named Mita Sosuke, who was very much into society structure and existentialism. And this is probably what started him down this odd path. He spent a large portion of his time dissecting the issue of living a difficult life and how to live a comfortable life, maybe trying to find a good balance or a solution. The Complete Manual of Suicide was actually his first book, and it made a pretty huge impact, selling more than one million copies, mostly to young people. I bet some of you might also be wondering, who the hell thought it was a good idea to even publish this book? I kind of wonder myself, the kind of thought process that took place when this book was submitted for publication. But then again, I kind of believe that people were less aware or sensitive to these topics and the kind of response it would receive. It was the 90s. I don't really think this could happen now in the year 2020, but who knows. To put it simply, this book is literally filled with different ways to commit suicide. And every different way is rated based on its fatality, pain level, effort required, etc. All in all, it's a pretty detailed account on exploring your options when it comes to suicide. Clearly, this was written based on accounts of other people, not personal experience. Didn't want to state the obvious, but well, sometimes it's necessary. I would like to first explain something from the author's point of view. Although he did write this extremely controversial book on this extremely controversial topic, 
The book itself does not actually encourage people to commit suicide, nor does it go into detail about why people kill themselves. If anything, he wants his readers to live. According to him, it's merely a simple how to guide, and at the same time, helping people see life and death from a different angle and not condemn those who think about suicide. In the prologue, the author does explain his intention with the book and his own thoughts on suicide. He expresses his concern for people who are looking for a way out of life but have difficulty carrying it out. He also shows sympathy for those struggling in life and questions society and the morality of suicide. Why are people encouraged to stay alive if it's not making them happy? If killing oneself can help ease the pain for some people, who are we, everybody else, to tell them no, and why do we even have a say in this? Why is it wrong to kill yourself? Why must we stay alive? These are definitely challenging and very tough questions, and I honestly don't think there is going to be an answer that will satisfy everyone. He states that life is monotonous. People repeat the same conversations, the same routine, watch the same things on TV, hear the same BS from politicians over and over till we die. He also points out that the traditional arguments like, you shouldn't take your own life because life is precious, or everything will get better as long as you're alive, or if you die, those around you will be sad. These arguments to him are outdated and do not serve as real arguments. For someone who is thinking about death, these arguments will not really deter them. Asian societies especially, though, it could be seen as a major disgrace and betrayal to parents if their children kill themselves, as when they get old, they expect their kids to take care of them. If their kids die, who will take care of them? People will also talk shit, maybe even go as far as saying how everything the parents did for them was a waste. I know, pretty harsh. As many of you know, Japan is kind of well known for its high suicide rate, though recently, their suicide rate seemed to have dropped significantly, which is great. The kind of pressure the Japanese society experiences is very different from other societies. If you need a brief introduction to the kind of society I'm referring to, please go back to episode 6 of my podcast, Choosing Death. Now, on to the book. The book has about 11 different chapters, each detailing a distinct way to die. With every way to die, there are six different assessments for each method that is rated from 0 to 5. Pain level, as in how much it will hurt. Effort level, meaning how much effort and work one needs to put into making it work. Death appearance, as in how you will look after death, which I assume is ranked from. Alive ish to very much unrecognizable. Disturbance. This refers to how much trouble it will bring to those around you. I mean, Japanese people are super polite, and even if they decide to kill themselves, they still have to think about how much trouble they will bring onto others. Shock value, which I assume is how much it will affect others. Fatality. Pretty self explanatory. The author approaches the entire book in a very guidelike and detached manner. Like I mentioned, he does not encourage people to take their own lives. According to him, 
He is simply offering up information for those who may want to learn more about suicide. Do you think this could affect those who decide to pick up this book? As for ways to die, we know there are limitless ways, but for the sake of this book, we will just discuss what the author thinks are the top ways to go. I'll give a brief description of each chapter because if I go into details, I might as well translate the book and upload it to audible.com. And before any of you think that's a good idea, it's probably not because the book is banned. There are translated versions online you can find, probably done by a Redditor. Okay, so chapter one, taking medicines, which is basically referring to overdosing. He explains how every type of medicine has a working dosage, a poisonous dosage, and a lethal dosage. And any medication that cannot reach the lethal dosage cannot be considered real medicine. I am no doctor or pharmacist, so you cannot quote me on that. There are many types of medicines out there. Some require a large dosage for it to work, while some may have to be taken with care. So it's up to the individual to do their own homework and understand the process. Many people may try to overdose on pills without knowing how many can be fatal. If not enough, it just leaves you feeling a different kind of pain while you're hospitalized. The author also discusses all these different types that could be of use. Different types of medicines, drugs, or even cleaning supplies. I guess the author really did his homework because he provides a list of dosage, pricing range, and all that relevant info. Chapter 2. Hanging The author crowned this method as the best way to die because it's very fatal and easy. All you need is a rope. You can even do it while sitting down. I don't know. I don't know how that works or how it's considered the best method because it sounds extremely uncomfortable and painful. The author explains that it's also about getting the right position. And if you get it in the right spot, you can easily pass out and your work is done. There are various instances of people attempting suicide, but instead of dying, they end up taking months to recover, sometimes having problems with speech, memory, or even motor skills. Basically, if not done properly, it can be a problem to not only yourself, but to everybody else around you. This is only if you're found before you die a slow death, of course. We've also heard stories of people being hanged for committing crimes, and once the trapdoor opens, instead of dying immediately, they struggle on the rope for minutes. And since we're on the topic of hanging, this would be a great time to talk about Aokigahara, the suicide forest located at the foot of Mount Fuji, which is also known as Jukai in Japanese, meaning a sea of trees. In case you missed it, this place is basically a huge forest where many people looking to kill themselves end up. It's secluded, and in a way, it's kind of like a find-yourself destination. If you recall the year 2017, YouTuber Logan Paul went in there with his friends, recorded his adventures, which included finding the body of a man who had committed suicide there. As kids would say, Logan Paul was immediately cancelled because of that, which I get. It's a bit much. But anyway, people go camping there. Some may use that time to reflect on their life, and there are times when people change their minds and decide to give life another try. 
From the entrance and throughout the entire forest, there are many signs telling people to think twice, to think about their loved ones, and to think about the possibilities in life. I think this is the kind of argument the author deems as futile. So that was a brief idea of the forest. But here's some extra information from the author of the complete manual of suicide. Some of the information may be slightly outdated, though, but it's still interesting to know that at one point in time, this is how things were like. The book provides maps of the forest, indicating entryways, where the warning signs are, and what areas are suitable or not suitable for suicide. He briefly discusses the history of the location, stating that it's always been a popular suicide spot, but it only began getting more attention around 1957, when the forest became a topic for a book and a TV show. I really don't know if the author himself took a walk through the forest or not, but he gives pretty detailed instructions on where to go, where to turn, how to handle yourself in there, all that. It's easy to get lost in that forest, and with trees surrounding you from all sides, I can only imagine how hard it must be to get out of that place. The author talks about places where you're less likely to be found, and that's an ideal scenario because by not being found, you don't cause inconveniences to others. You know, trying to be polite, even in death. The author also gives some pointers on how to deal with the locals living nearby because the locals can always tell when someone plans to end their life in the forest. If they sense it, they are likely to come up to you and ask you about your life. And unless you fully convince them that you're not going to kill yourself, they may keep talking to you until you change your mind. At the time the book was written, if you have a loved one in the forest and you're trying to find them, it would cost about 10,000 yen per rescue person per day. So if you wanted to mobilize, say, 10 people for a two-day search, that would be about 200,000 yen, approximately 1,800 US dollars. Not sure how much it would cost now, but I wouldn't be surprised if the price went up. An interesting case of a man who went into the forest but changed his mind later happened in the year 1983. A 31-year-old man left his hometown and wandered around for a month trying to find the perfect place to kill himself. He eventually arrived at Aokigahara and went in. He spent the first week looking for the perfect place to hang himself, but he kept running into mushroom pickers, and basically all his plans kept getting interrupted. It got to a point where he realized he was actually not that determined to kill himself. He spent a total of 16 days wandering around the forest, sometimes leaving just to get food at convenience stores near the forest. On the 16th day, he decided he wanted to go home. He went to a house located near the forest and asked to use their phone. After he was picked up and rescued by the police, he stated that he didn't want to kill himself anymore. I suppose sometimes some people do need more time to think things over or to just get away. Chapter 3. Leaping The author labeled this method leaping from buildings as the most superior way to die, pretty much on the same level as hanging. Very fatal, very quick, and the process doesn't hurt. The author goes on to explain that the act of leaping from buildings or cliffs is a very sacred act. Back in the olden days where people wanted to die using this method, they would jump from cliffs and waterfalls, but due to urbanization, they have now been replaced by tall buildings. I think it's the location, 
the idea of nature and leaping off into nature that kind of brings about an air of mysticism and whatnot. I guess it's a bit romanticized. So first off, the author gives off information and facts about the best way to jump off buildings. He also gives some calculations on velocity, height, all that stuff you learned in school but never got to use in real life. I don't think this is absolutely necessary information, so I will not discuss this part with you all. It's basically just ideas of where and how to pull it off. Eh. He then tries to answer a very common question people think about when it comes to this situation. What's it like when you're mid-air? And does it hurt when you hit the ground? Sorry to state the obvious again, but these questions are obviously answered by those who lived. A man who leapt from the fourth floor of a building recounted that, quote, I didn't feel fear. It felt natural going over the railing. And as for whether I felt pain or not, when I hit the ground, I do not remember. But I did know that I was on the ground, end quote. Another man who fell from an icy cliff recounted that it almost felt like he had wings. And while he was falling... He thought about his loved ones, their future, and his past. He lost consciousness and did not feel any pain when he hit the ground, despite having multiple injuries. Of course, not everyone shares that experience. A 17-year-old girl leapt from the fourth-floor building of her school and broke her neck when she hit the ground. She did not die upon impact, but was instead still conscious and in pain, screaming that it hurt, it hurt. She made it to the hospital but died shortly after. I suppose there is no guarantee when it comes to these things. Some people feel fear. Some feel regret. Some are at peace. He goes on to describe different scenarios and how different leaps can affect the condition of the body. He also provides some information on some of the famous buildings that have a history of being a suicide building. And I'm sure you understand what that means. Many of these buildings have since either been suicide-proofed, as in high railings have been installed, or just renovated so this does not happen again. I remember back when I was working at a hotel, guests would sometimes complain about not being able to open the window in the room and how they needed fresh air. I have heard that this is done to avoid guests from jumping out windows, but honestly, it's kind of awkward and morbid to have to explain this to hotel guests. So we just smile and tell them, yeah, it's for your own safety. Most of them get the hint. Chapter 4. Cutting the Wrist and Carotid Artery According to the author, cutting is not really a great method. The actual chances of succeeding by cutting your wrist is not very high, but it is also considered one of the most common ways to attempt suicide. Aside from the wrist, there are also many other areas he considers better and straight to the point. He even includes the act of harakiri, also known as seppuku, which is a traditional form of Japanese suicide, where they use a sword or a knife to disembowel themselves. I know, sounds really painful. I don't think this is something people do anymore, thank God. And although it sounds intense, it probably leads to a lot of suffering before one actually dies. All these methods depend on how you cut and where you aim, so there is never really a correct answer. Some people take one stab and pass away within seconds, whereas some may stab or cut themselves multiple times and still manage to live. The author also provides anatomical images of the human body. 
I guess, indicating where to cut and where to avoid. And I should have pointed this out earlier, but all the so-called images I mentioned earlier that the author provides, like maps of the forest, directions, and um, parts of the human body, they're actually not shown at all in the digital version that I'm reading from, which I think is a good thing. I mean, yes, they may provide more information and context, but just reading the words is enough for me, and also, I get to work my imagination. Chapter 5. Jumping Jumping here refers specifically to jumping in front of moving vehicles, such as trains. Japan has a lot of trains. Apparently, this is something that happens in Japan a lot, so the fatality level is high up there, but it causes a lot of disturbance for everyone else. The trains are then delayed, the conductor feels guilt, the cleanup is messy. I'm sure you can imagine. The author provides certain statistics, stating that July and August are the most popular months for this to happen. Those who choose this method are usually men, and this act is more likely to occur when the day is cloudy. And of course, since this is technically a manual, the author again gives some insight on the best times, best locations with directions and maps included, and also the best approach to this. One major downside to this, though, is the financial burden that comes after. The train companies are allowed to ask or sue the victim's family for compensation, since time is money, and not to mention the cleanup process. I had no idea that this was a thing. It sounds really cold and brutal. Although this method is pretty deadly, it is still possible to fail. A 24-year-old woman jumped from a bridge to an oncoming train, but instead of getting run over and all that, she actually managed to get stuck in between two train cars and had only minor injuries. Apparently, the fact that she didn't die had to do with her being on the petite side, which is interesting. Another 16-year-old girl attempted suicide by jumping in front of a train. This girl, though, suffered more drastic injuries, passed out on the spot, and awoke 10 days later in the hospital. She had both her legs amputated, suffered many broken bones, but was still alive. She later received counseling, and after six months in the hospital, she was finally discharged. She ended up marrying the pastor who counseled her, and has since been working towards spreading the importance of life. Interesting, and very good for her. Well, that's it for the first part of episode 48, basically the first five chapters of the book, and I will discuss the remaining six chapters in part two and I will also give you an update on the author. I decided to make this episode a two-parter because 1. The topic is somewhat depressing, heavy, and sensitive. I don't want to overburden you guys. And 2. The topic is somewhat depressing, heavy, and sensitive, so I wanted to take my time and work on word choice, pick and choose what parts to put on the podcast, and also give myself a bit more space and time to navigate the topic. Thank you for understanding, and I totally understand if this topic was upsetting or triggering for some of you. All I'm trying to do is present an account of what the author provides, while showing the bizarre nature of this book. Because, let's be real, it's fucking weird. Part 2 will be out next week. Till next time. And of course... It's been a while, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to new Patreon and my new reviewers. 
Thank you, Kristen Montgomery and Laurel Christick. Thank you very much for your pledge. I truly appreciate it. And for my reviewers, MK Flores, yet another reviewer, both from the U.S. and Zio Noir from Germany. I think that's my first review from Germany. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.